0: Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Bruce Struggs, my community and connecting pastor here at Wyzetta Free Church. It is my pleasure to be up here this morning. For those of you that have not seen the movie Home Alone, I want to give you a little background on that clip. Kevin McAllister wakes up uh, on the morning that his family is supposed to go on vacation, having had a big fight with his family the night before, having been banished to the attic to spend the night, and due to a power outage, his family had left without him. And he wakes up in the morning and he walks through the house and he finds nobody there. And he runs out to the backyard and he sees the cars still sitting in the garage because he didn't know they took a shuttle to the airport. And he looks around and he decides that the most logical thing that could have happened in this situation is that through some miracle of Christmas magic, he made his family disappear. There's no chance there's another explanation. He draws the only logical conclusion, right? The only logical conclusion is, I made my family disappear. Kevin McAllister sees what Kevin wants to see. He doesn't see reality, he sees what he wants to see. And I think we all do that. There are times where we look around at the evidence in front of us and we come to the only logical conclusion that we see what we want to see, that we're the thing we're wishing for, the thing we're desiring, the thing that we want is obviously the thing that has happened. As we look through Exodus this morning, we're going to be in Exodus, starting in Exodus chapter 7, if you want to open your Bibles and get there. We're going to be in Exodus 7, and we're going to see the different characters in this story, look at the evidence in front of them, and come to vastly different conclusions. They're going to look at the evidence in front of them, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the magicians, all of them, they're going to come to different conclusions. They, they see what they want to see. And, and I'll give you another example of how sometimes we look at things and we can only come to one conclusion. When Kevin Meyer, not Kevin McAllister from the movie, Kevin Meyer asked me if I would preach this morning. Uh, this was back when he was still planning out the Exodus series. We didn't know where it was going to go exactly. And he emailed me, and his email to me said this line, and I quote, As you look at these plagues, let me know which one strikes you, and maybe you can head in that direction. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, there is only one accurate interpretation of that email. Our senior pastor wants me to be struck by a plague. We see what we want to see, right? Would you pray with me and then we'll dive into God's word this morning. Father God, I thank you for this morning that we can be here in your house. God, that we can look at your word. May you speak to us this morning. I'm going to pray this in your name. Amen. Like Kevin did last week, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to go through the story and then I'm going to try and draw some more logical conclusions at the end um, that will help us hopefully to think differently. But I'm going to start reading in Exodus 7, verse 25. Uh, For some of you, that looks like the start of chapter 8, um, but that's where it is, 725. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. And, uh, seven days had passed is how it starts. Seven days. Now, Kevin has talked a little bit already about there's a lot of patterns in the, in the plague narratives, right? There's all these patterns. There's this pattern of Moses and Aaron coming down to the Nile and speaking to Pharaoh and then leaving, and then there's a sequence of three plagues, and then he's going to come back and do it again in a sequence of three plagues. There's a lot of patterns. There's a lot of uh, of symmetry in the plagues. Now, I would encourage you to watch the progression as we go through it, the progression of how Pharaoh reacts, the progression of how the people of Israel react, the progression on the officials and the Egyptians, and they're all going to Go on diverging paths, but there is a pattern and a symmetry to it. And that's important for this line because this is the only time marker we get in the whole series. Seven days had passed since the Nile had been turned to blood. And the implication here is that that pattern will continue moving forward. In ancient Near East literature, the idea was they will say it at the beginning, and I will tell you if it changes. So if they don't say it again, we can assume in a patterned story that the pattern will continue. The idea is these plagues aren't falling every day. There's a pause there's an opportunity for Pharaoh, the Israelites, and the Egyptians and all of the people to reflect and think about what is going on and respond. There's an opportunity, a pause. 7 days had passed. For some though the plagues, they look at it and they see just this natural cycle. And Kevin kind of alluded to this last week as well. right? He talked about how the Nile turning like blood was really more like blood than actual blood. This idea that that the the Nile uh, deeper in Africa and Ethiopia would flood, this algae would come down and and could turn the the river to look like blood, it would fill all the canals and streams, this algae choking out the fish and killing it. And, And taking that idea, there's a natural progression then into the frogs as one theologian put it the idea is that exceptionally high flood levels brought increased sediment into the Nile discoloring the river there was then an outbreak of bacterial poisoning in the river which killed off the fish this further polluted the water, forcing frogs to invade the dry land. When they died off through lack of food, their carcasses provided an ideal breeding ground for mosquitoes and flies, which rapidly multiplied and spread through the land of Egypt. The increased number of flies carried disease, often identified as anthrax, to the land animals and eventually to humans. And, and from there you can see at least the beginning of the sequence of plagues has a natural connection Right, There's a natural progression. But as anybody knows, it's one thing to predict a natural progression or explain it away after the fact. It's another thing entirely to predict it before it has happened. So what I want to stress right now is the significance of the timing. It happens on God's time and precisely as God says. Moses is explicit at these plagues about what will happen prior to its happening. In other words, what's significant about the plagues is that, is that Moses says this is about to happen and it's about to happen in, in a specific timing and to an excessive degree. There's a reason they're referred to as plagues of biblical proportions. And there is one big piece of evidence that shows that even if it is a natural cycle, it is a natural cycle being guided by God. And that is the pre-warning given to Moses and the Israelites in verse 2 of chapter 8. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Now, we all know that it's easy to find the reason after. But again, the crux of the issue is the fact that Moses says it ahead of time. This will happen, and it will happen to an excessive degree. Beyond the natural, beyond the normal. If you rule out as possible a divine hand at work in the book of Exodus, you'll see it as mere sequence of events, as happenstance, as maybe a rewriting of history by the victors. I would argue that instead it's God trying to get his message out to many, many people. And he's not just speaking to Pharaoh. Moses is directly talking to Pharaoh... But he's not just speaking to Pharaoh. He's trying to get the attention of the Israelites, of Pharaoh, of the Egyptians. And as we'll see as we follow the story forward throughout the Old Testament, the plagues of Egypt, the exodus from Egypt is going to come up again and again and again and again as a significant marker. God is making history and he is getting everybody's attention. If you jump ahead to Joshua 2, verse 10, we read this. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. So this is Rahab speaking when the spies are being hidden in her house before they come into the land. This is more than 40 years after they left Egypt. And people are still talking about it. And who are they giving credit to? Not the natural cycles of life. They are giving complete credit to God. We have heard how the Lord dried up. Everybody sees it as the hand of God. Everybody sees it as the hand of God. And if you jump ahead another 350 to 400 years through the time of the judges and into the time of Samuel, who is the prophet of Israel in that time, in 1 Samuel 6, we read Samuel warning the people of Israel, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? So you see, God isn't just speaking to the Israelites and the Egyptians and Pharaoh. He's also speaking to all of the surrounding nations and even the people of the future to remind them that he is God and he is in control. And so the significance of God moving is everyone sees it as the hand of God. And the difference is how they respond, right? How they respond to seeing God move is the the difference. This is the first plague which will impact Pharaoh directly. If you look back to the plague of blood on the Nile, um, it talks in the in the text about them being able to dig in the sand near the Nile to get fresh water. Pharaoh is a king, and beyond being a king, Pharaoh sees himself as a god. King God kings don't dig for water. God kings have people dig for water for them. Pharaoh isn't impacted by the Nile turning to blood. Maybe inconvenienced in that occasionally he can't go take his bath in the Nile, but he's not directly impacted. That will completely change with the frogs. But here the impact is huge, let's look at the text again. The Nile will team with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. It will be overwhelming, frogs are everywhere. They're in your beds, they're in your kitchens, they're in your kneading troughs. You can't help but touch them. Your food is touching them. You can't help but be overwhelmed. They cannot help but step on them. They are killing them, stepping on them. They are completely overwhelmed. Do you think it had their attention? (laughs) The frog or toad was deified. They saw the frog as, as, a, as a sign of the deity. The goddess Hecht, who assisted women in childbirth. The Egyptians deified frogs. They were sacred and could not be killed. A crime punishable by death. Yet the Egyptians were forced to tread on them and later to see them all die and rot. This protected species they are forced to kill. Kevin mentioned the parallel between when, when, when Moses was born and, and Pharaoh put out the edict to sacrifice the babies into the Nile, seeing that and tying that to the blood in the Nile as a, as a parallel that they couldn't help but see. This idea that this Nile that you sacrificed our babies in is turning into blood before your eyes. Your God is, is is turning into blood before your eyes. And the parallel between this plague and the edict to kill the Hebrew babies is impossible to ignore as well. A deity tied to childbirth, the impact on the Nile continuing, a people being forced to kill that which was important to them, God is making sure they sit up and take notice. The evidence is before everybody's eyes. God is at work. But they justify it. The hand of God is moving, but they justify it. Can, keep reading with me in Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 6. We'll reread verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And if I could just pause there and reflect on the magicians for a minute... Two things come to my mind. First of all, Pharaoh doesn't need more frogs. He needs less frogs. What kind of magician shows up when you're overwhelmed and overrun by frogs and says, frogs? You want more frogs? I'll make frogs. I can make frogs too. I'm reminded we had uh, a couple years ago, we had bees uh, build a hive in our foundation of our house. And if anybody's experienced that, you know how challenging that can be. But it was such a big hive and they were so thick that I could put my ear on the wall of my basement foundation and hear them buzzing. Eventually, we called an exterminator. Now imagine with me if that exterminator showed up and said, ah, bees in your foundation. Well, what I've done is I've hung another beehive outside so that the bees will see naturally where they're supposed to go. So you have a bee problem, here's more bees. I would not be happy with that exterminator. Pharaoh is clearly not impressed with his magicians because in the next verse, he's going to call out to Moses and Aaron. But the other thing I want to point out I would really like to know, in, the, in earlier in the text, it says that the frogs will even be on your officials. They're going to be so thick, they're going to be on you as people. How did they know who made which frogs? I mean, did the magicians really create more frogs, or did they just point to a group of them and said, those are mine, I made those. See, all the frogs with odd-numbered spots are my frogs. All the frogs with even-numbered spots are, are Moses' frogs. How did they know how did they know that the the magicians created I just I just wonder cuz as we continue on Pharaoh clearly isn't impressed their efforts provide some comfort for people wanting to doubt the exclusive power of God sure if you want to prove that maybe another god could also have done it it brings some comfort but it doesn't really bring relief it doesn't really bring peace it's little more than a token imitation by deception of what divine power could truly do. So we'll continue with the story in verse eight, and I'm going to read here from eight to uh, through verse five, um, through verse fifteen. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and they said, "Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord." Moses said to Pharaoh. I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you in your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And here's the request. Pharaoh, in his pain, in his turmoil, in his anger, in his frustration with his magicians, turns to Moses and Aaron and he says, Ask the Lord your God to get rid of these frogs. And as we move into the last part of the story, I want to highlight four lessons we can learn from Pharaoh on responding to God at work in our lives. Lesson number one, Pharaoh ignores God's call. Pharaoh was not impressed with his magicians. He was seeking less frogs, not more. In his pain, his heart is inclined toward God. Yet look at his offer. His offer is less than what God was asking for. God said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, they may go offer sacrifices. And I think we do the exact same thing oftentimes. God is calling on our life that he wants us And he wants all of us. He wants us in our entirety. And we try and offer him just enough to get out of our predicament. Just a token. I'll give you a portion of who I am, God. Um, How many stories have we read where somebody was in chaos, in pain, and they cried out to God and said, God, if you get me out of this, I'll become a missionary, or I'll become a pastor, or I'll... And then what happens when they come out of that pain? I... I didn't really mean that, God. I, you know, not quite you know, a missionary or a pastor. That's such a, God doesn't want just my vocation. God doesn't want just your vocation. God doesn't want just a part of you. He wants all of you. He wants your entirety. He wants your whole being. And yet we turn and ignore God's call on our life and offer him a portion, less than what God is calling for. God, I know I said I would forgive that person, but how about if I just ignore them instead? I won't be mean to them, but I won't really be nice either. I'll just ignore them. That's close enough, right, God? That's close enough to forgiving them. Lesson number one, he ignores God's call. Lesson number two, Pharaoh ignores God's timing. The timing in this whole story is significant. The frogs show up on time. The frogs leave on time. The Nile turns to blood on time. Timing is everything. God's hand is symbolic in his timing. Giving Pharaoh the power to choose when the frogs will leave is apologetically brilliant on Moses' part. The king can't deny that they left on a certain time when he picks the time. It's interesting that he picks tomorrow, not today. <laughs> Next week would be great, um, but he picks tomorrow. Now there could be because some acknowledgement in his part in his part that he says this can't happen instantaneously. We don't know why he picks tomorrow. Maybe it was eleven fifty nine and he knew tomorrow was one minute away. We don't know, but he picks tomorrow. But giving him the power of timing is brilliant. He can't sit there and claim it was just a natural consequence. And yet he does, right? When it happens, when it, when it moves on later, he looks back at it and he goes, meh. And he hardens his heart and he rejects that. And we do the exact same thing. Not always in, uh, intentionally. I think oftentimes we ignore God's timing simply because we're not paying attention. How many of us have offered to pray for somebody and genuinely prayed for them and then forgotten all about it and a week later when they tell us that that prayer was answered, we don't even remember praying for it and therefore we don't even notice that God was at work. How many of us ignore God's timing or we get upset because God's timing isn't our timing. God, I want this yesterday and you're telling me I have to wait till tomorrow? God, I want this and I want it my way and you're telling me no? And we ignore God's timing. Some ways that we can work on that, some ways that we can avoid ignoring God's timing in our life. Number one, journal your prayer requests. I would encourage you to write them down. You want to see where God is moving? Look back on your life. Journal your prayer requests. My wife and I, every week, look back on our week and try and focus on the wins that we had throughout the week. What went well this week? Oftentimes I'm surprised because they weren't things on my calendar. Be authentic with other believers. Andrea talked briefly about finding a small group, finding another believer. Share with them what's going on in your life. Find somebody you can be honest with who can come up to you and say, didn't you pray for that? Didn't you ask God to do that? Pharaoh ignores God's timing. Number three, Pharaoh ignores God's impact. Moses prays. Notice in verse 10 that he tells Pharaoh why he is praying. So that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. And they will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. Moses doesn't just pray. Moses prays earnestly. Moses pleads with God. He does not deny the impact that God has. Moses doesn't know God's timing. Moses does know that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened again. Moses is told earlier on in Exodus 4 that that Moses' heart will continue to be hardened until he loses his only son. So Moses has an idea that the Frogs will probably leave eventually. Moses has an idea that things will continue to escalate. But he doesn't have the full picture. So when he gets before God, he does not ignore God's impact on the situation. And he pleads with God. And God, in part, listens to him. And the Lord did what Moses asked. His prayer is important. We read in Luke 11, 9 and 10, so I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We are called to ask God and to come to God with our requests. But we're called to pray earnestly and intensely. And so Andrea also shared earlier about this Go 2020, about about uh, pray for one, care for one, share with one. I would encourage you to take that seriously and to pray seriously for that. God, who are you putting on my heart? You might be surprised that it's not the person you think it is. But are you willing to take the time and to honor God's impact? Pharaoh, when, when it's removed, ignores the impact that God had. He forgets that he asked God to remove the frogs. Or ignores it. And finally, number four. When relieved from his pain, Pharaoh ignores God's mercy. In repentance, we forget the impact our sins had. In psychology, there's this idea of the hot cold empathy gap. Now, what the hot-cold empathy gap is, is this idea that when I am angry and frustrated and agitated, I am a completely different person than when I'm not. When I am hot, I am a different person than when I am cold. And when I am cold, I am a different person than when I am hot. And oftentimes, we don't believe we are the other person. When we are cold, we can't believe how somebody would act when they're angry. When we are angry, we can't believe that anybody ever thought how we were behaving was irrational. George Lowenstein, the guy who, who uh, named this, says this, When you're not in pain or cold or experiencing a powerful emotion like anger or fear, it is very difficult to imagine yourself in that situation. Emotions completely transform us as people. So when we are in one emotional state, it's as if we're a different person than when we are in a different emotional state. And that's exactly what happens to Pharaoh. With the pain gone, with the frogs gone, he looks around and he says, you know, the frogs really weren't that big of a deal. Losing my slave labor, that's a big deal. I changed my mind. You can't leave. I'm not giving up. And we do the same thing. When, the, when God grants us mercy, when, when, when we acknowledge the impact of our sins and, and we ask for forgiveness, and, and things go back to normal, we are appalled at who we were, and we deny the impact that it had. It really wasn't that bad, God. It really wasn't that bad. When somebody comes up to you and says, what you said or did to me really hurt, we go, it really wasn't that bad. Come on. I said I'm sorry. When we wait a minute, when we pause in the midst of pain, in the midst of our sins, we can be tempted to justify what is happening and remove God from our story. Or we can pause... Acknowledge God in our midst and see where he may be trying to get our attention and see where he is at work. When we pause and look at our life and we see that God is at work, our response is to repent and worship. When we ignore God in our midst, our, our response is to harden our hearts and to double down. We're going we're to take some time and we're going we're gonna to move into a time of worship.